Well, good morning. It's good to see you again. Uh, it's the second week of Advent, and Advent is a season in the life of the church uh, where we prepare, we anticipate, we look forward to the celebration that comes Christmas Day. Advent's a time of preparing, waiting, uh, longing, expecting, and then we'll rejoice Christmas Day of what Christ has done in His birth and His life and His death and His resurrection. Advent reminds us and it teaches us also that we right now as Christians, as the church, are in a time of waiting and hoping and expecting when Christ will return again. And in the second coming of Christ, He will right all that is wrong with this world. He will make everything sad become untrue. As Christians, we live in a time where Christ has already come, right? It's in His first coming. And He has secured redemption and salvation, but it's not fully revealed yet. We live in this tension of what's been termed the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. We live in a time where we've already, if we trust Jesus, we've already been forgiven. Uh, we've already been healed. Uh, and the power of sin uh, has been taken away. But the presence and the consequences of sin are not yet removed. We live in a time where Christ has already given us peace and joy, but we live in a time where an everlasting abiding peace and joy is not yet. So we wait and we hope. And we don't like to wait. We don't have much patience in our culture. Uh, I, I can definitely say that's true for me. Patience is not a virtue for me. And our culture is not patient. Advent teaches us to wait patiently. It teaches us to live in this tension of the already and the not yet. We rejoice in what Christ has done in His first coming, and we long and we anticipate when Christ comes again to rule and reign with His perfect love and grace in a complete kingdom. This morning and during the Advent season, we're looking at the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Uh, they are a collection of, of songs, actually, that were sung by the Israelites. We're picking four during Advent. Uh, this morning, we're looking at Psalm 126. Uh, but these were songs that were sung as the Israelites would make their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the temple, and in the temple was the presence of God. And so they would make these pilgrimages together, singing these songs, longing and hoping and waiting to when they could be in the presence of God with the people of God. And so our hope and our prayer during this Advent season is that Christ Central, we would sing these songs together as we journey and as we travel and as we long and hope when Christ returns. And until that day, may these be hymns and songs that mold and shape us into people that know how to live in this already and not yet. And so if you will, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to look at Psalm 126 this morning. If you're able, stand. This is our custom. As we read God's word this morning, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you come and Holy Spirit, you speak. 
Help us to see Jesus. May we see that in Christ is the fountain of living water that never runs dry. So we come and we ask that you quench our thirst. Feed us yet again. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, O oh God, be pleasing to you now. Be seen in your word. May we hear and may we respond. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, Psalm 126, if you picked up on it, it's a psalm of joy, isn't it? It's a psalm of gladness. Now, true joy, true gladness is often very elusive. It's, it's very elusive. And I believe all of us here this morning are pursuing joy and gladness. Now, what we all pursue differs, right? What we all pursue and what, how we pursue joy and gladness differs for everybody here this morning. I recently watched a documentary on Bert Shavitz. I don't know if any of you know who Bert Shavitz is. He is the Bert of the company Bert's Bees, uh, which is headquartered about four blocks that way at American Tobacco Campus. Uh, Bert's Bees is a natural, earthy, kind of healthcare product company, and Bert Shavitz is a man who just kind of happened into this business, a very huge business now. He was a photographer living in Manhattan, and at a young age, he decided to leave the big city, move out into the country of Maine, uh, where he would live alone with no power, so no heat, no air, no lights. He'd live all alone, uh, and he decided that he'd become kind of a beekeeper just to make a little bit of money. He'd be a beekeeper, he'd sell his honey, make a little bit of a living, and then his friend Roxanne is actually the one that took Burt's Bees national and now international. Burt sold uh, his portion of the company, and his face is still the logo. If you ever seen the, the logo, that's Bert. Uh, and he lives now on a small piece of land, still in the country of Maine, all alone with his dog. That's Bert, Bert's ideal life. Simple, his dog, piece of land, he's happy. And as I watched this documentary, though, I, I kind of envied for a little bit the simple life of Bert. Oh, that'd be nice. I love my dog and my wife, and we'd just be out on the land, and it'd be simple. But the more I watched this documentary, the, the more sad I became. The more alone I realized he was. The more I realized this life that he thought would fulfill him never satisfied. The simple life would not satisfy Bert. Now, Tom Brady is about the complete opposite of Bert Shabbats, isn't he? Uh, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the history of the NFL, Super Bowl champion, Married to a supermodel, uh, his life is anything but simple, right? His, his life is flashy and extravagant. And some of you maybe have heard this before, but Tom Brady, in an interview on 60 Minutes, he said this, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, Hey, man, that's what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, and my life. Me, he says, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Bert pursues joy in the simple life. Tom Brady pursues joy in success and achievement and fame. Both men show me that the pursuit of true joy and gladness is elusive to many. doesn't matter if you try to pursue it by being simple or by being extravagant. All of you here have different dreams of what will give you joy. Maybe you think, man, I just can't, just when I graduate school, right? Can't wait till I graduate. Maybe it's when I get married, or maybe when my marriage gets better, or when I can live in this place, or when I can have children, or when I have money, or when I have enough money 
to retire, or when I have no stressful responsibilities, or when I make it through this season of life, or when I hit these goals, then I will be joyful. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, he said, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. I agree with Lewis. The issue for all of us, regardless of what we think will give us joy, is that we're far too easily pleased. Christian, non-Christian. We settle for making mud pies in the slum instead of taking God up on an offer of a holiday at the sea. You know that old country song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places? Well, we look for joy and gladness in all the wrong places. If you're a Christian, and, or if you're not a Christian, you're searching and you're skeptical of Christianity this morning, I'm really glad you're here. And I want you to know that at Christ Central, we want nothing more than be a people full of joy, to be glad. We believe that's what Christ calls us to. If you're a Christian... I have, to, I have to say that we are often not the best representation of joy to those who are seeking and searching about Christianity. I know I'm guilty. I think one of the biggest lies the devil can feed us is that the Christian life is one of rote duty or strict service without the presence of joy. The lie that, well, you're really not supposed to be that happy. You're not supposed to have that much joy. And this psalm shows us that the journey that we all travel, the road that we travel as Christians, should be marked with joy. But often, it's not. It's elusive. Alexander Schmemann, who was an Orthodox priest, writer, teacher, he said, of all the accusations against Christians, the most terrible one was uttered by the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche's philosophy, God is dead, Schmemann said the most terrible accusation was when Nietzsche said Christians had no joy. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was a member of the Supreme Court for 30 years, from 1902 to 1932. Incredible mind, wit, work ethic. And at one point in his life, Justice Holmes explained his choice of a career by saying this. He said, I might have entered ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. (laughs) ministers who looked and acted like undertakers, Christians who acted like undertakers. You understand what he's saying? Christians who look like they're around death all the time. Christians who have no joy. I would agree that that is one of the greatest apologetics against Christianity. People asking Christians, where's your joy? Now, please don't tune me out uh, this morning. If you're here and you're going through a really hard time, And happiness seems far removed from you. I I, I will explain joy a little bit later, and I hope that when I do, it'll help you for where you are in the present. Psalm 126 shows us that the God who has and the God who will deliver us gives joy in the present. The God of the past and the God of the future gives joy in the present. Joy and gladness should be the mark of the road we travel. Now, verse 3 It's the center of this psalm. It's the hinge on which verses 1 to 2 and then verses 4 to 6 rotate. And verse 3 says, The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. 
were glad. The Israelites sing the song as they're journeying, and they sing, we are glad. Right now, currently, we are glad. Verses 1 to 2 shows us that joy comes in remembrance, looking back. Verses 4 to 6 shows us that joy comes in expectation, looking forward. It's exactly what we celebrate in Advent. We look back and we look forward. And by God's grace, we are a people of joy in the present. So let's look first that joy comes in remembrance. Verses 1 to 2. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, this is speaking of a past experience, the Lord restored the God who has delivered. This is most likely speaking of the Israelites' return from exile in Babylon. In 586 B.C., the nation of Babylon invaded Israel, took them captive. And in their captivity, the Israelites were raped. They were forced to march. They were taunted by those who had conquered them. They were living in a foreign land, oppressed, persecuted, demoralized, defeated, conquered by their enemy. And then in 538 B.C., almost 50 years later, 50 years of living beaten down, mocked, conquered, no freedom, God uses a Persian king named Cyrus to make a decree that all the Jews could return to Jerusalem. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah record that. And the psalmist is saying that when God intervened and set them free to return to Jerusalem, then our mouth was filled with laughter, the psalm says, and our tongue with shouts of joy. And the nations said, the Lord has done great things for them. Can you imagine living 50 years in captivity in a land where you're beaten and you're raped and you're mocked? And then you get the news, you're being set free. You're going home. How many of you have seen the movie 12 Years a Slave? Have you seen it? Great movie. You need to watch it. All of you need to watch it. A heart-wrenching movie. Based off of the 1853 memoir of Solomon Northup. Solomon Northup was a New York State born free African-American man who was kidnapped and sold into slavery. Solomon was an educated man, incredible violin player, was taken prisoner and enslaved for 12 years to work the plantations in Louisiana. They changed his name on the plantations. He was beaten for being uppity. 12 years, Solomon, a free man, was enslaved and working the plantations in Louisiana. And then one of his good friends, a lawyer, finally comes to set him free from the tyranny of his owner. And Solomon, if you've seen it, he runs up to his friend and he falls in his arms crying with the biggest smile, the most joy that you could ever imagine. Solomon had dreamed about that day for 12 years. He had longed and hoped, and now his dream was a reality. Being set free from captivity for Israel, verse 1, it was like those who dream. It felt unreal. They had dreamed about it for 50 years, and now this dream had become a reality. They were filled with joy. And the psalm is telling us that present joy comes when they remember how they used to be in chains. They were enslaved under the rule of a tyrant, and God stepped in and intervened and set them free. That is the story for us. The story of captivity and deliverance. It's the story of the whole Bible. God's song to His people. They were in Egypt, and God set them free and delivered them to Canaan. Then Israel was disobedient, sent into exile. Then God delivered them and brought them to Jerusalem. 
But then they continued in their disobedience, and then there's this 400 years of silence from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, and Jesus comes on stage, and His kingdom is now here, and He delivers and He restores what was lost. But the church continues in the New Testament with problems and sins and struggles, and we still have struggles and sins presently, but Christ will come again and deliver us completely. That's our story. And at one time, you were living, if you are a Christian, you were living conquered by an enemy, oppressed, enslaved. And God, by His grace, caused you to begin to dream and to long to be set free. And the Lord stepped in and intervened and by His Spirit drew you to faith in Christ. And in Christ, your chains were broken. You were set free. You've been delivered and restored. Jesus Himself, He went into captivity, experienced our chains, was forsaken by the Father so that we could be set free from spiritual death, slavery to sin, and restored into fellowship with our God. One big reason why we as Christians are often not filled with joy, that we're not glad, is that we do not remember what God has done in the past. We are so quick to forget, so slow to remember. I I preached a whole sermon about that a few weeks ago, about remembering. Can you remember, Christian, the first time you saw Jesus? The first time the eyes of your heart were opened and you understood what Christ did, did and has done for you. The joy that came flooding in, the laughter, the dream that had become a reality. Can you remember that? Has that happened for you? If it hasn't, I want you to know that offer is to you this morning that you can be set free. What you most deeply long for is offered if you will trust Christ. And when Joshua in the Old Testament led Israel across the Jordan River, he instructed them to take stones, these large rocks with them, carry them over into the promised land so that the people would remember how they got there where they had come from, and who brought them there. They were stones of remembrance. It was active, participatory remembering as they laid these stones down in the promised land. Active remembrance is what we are called to do. Every Sunday morning, we gather here and we lay a stone down and we remember the deliverance of what Christ has done. Every time we open the Bible, we remember Every time we pray, we lay a stone down. Every time we gather in our city groups, we lay a stone down. And we remember our deliverance in Jesus. If you are not availing yourself to the means to remember God's deliverance in Jesus, His Word, prayer, fellowship, Sunday morning worship, my guess is you're probably not living with a deep sense of joy. Because joy comes in remembering looking back at what Christ has done. Joy also comes in expectation. Verses 4 to 6, we see this. Verses 4 to 6 has the idea of deliverance and restoration. Look at verse 4. Restore our fortunes. This is cry for deliverance. And in these two verses, there are two metaphors to describe this deliverance. It's likened to the streams in the Negev, and it's likened to that of a farmer. And there are common themes among those two metaphors. And the theme that is in common is sadness, despair, sorrow, and emptiness. 
Before there were streams in the Negev, it was dry, arid desert land. And before there was joy in the reaping, there were tears in the sowing. The psalmist is giving us insight into the present reality of the world in which he is living. And it's a reality that most of the Psalms of Ascent describe, that the world in which we live in is a sad world. It is full of letdown, and it is full of heartbreak, it is full of sickness, it's full of death, full of disappointment. It often feels like a dry and weary land where there is no water. It often feels like there are way more tears than there is laughter. But the psalmist is living in the present world. Verse 3, we are glad, I am glad. And we see in verses 4 to 6 that he is glad because of the expectation of what will come through pain, through suffering, in the desert times, in the lonely times. God has delivered us in the past, but as Christians we place our hope and our expectation that God will yet again deliver and restore. The dry and arid desert will become like the streams in the Negev. There will be times in this not yet, this lonely, hard life that we live where a torrential downpour will come in the desert. The streams will be rushing and out of nowhere, flowers will begin to blossom. Life will begin to show. In the tears of sowing, there will be times in which shouts of joy will be heard around the world. This is the psalmist hope that in the midst of pain and suffering and tears, God will yet again intervene and deliver God will rain down His blessing, and as Charles Spurgeon said, turn winter into spring. Now the joy that I'm talking about this morning, it's not a chipper joy. Right? It's not a God's great all the time kind of facade that we can put on in the South. Right? It's not a facade. It's sitting joy light. <laughs> the laughter that Psalm 126 talks about does not exclude weeping. It is actually a joy that remains in the midst of tears and pain. It's a much deeper joy than we often experience in the cheap joys of this world. I began by quoting C.S. Lewis that we settle for making mud pies in the slums. We often settle for the lesser joys of this world. But not only do we settle, but I also think we avoid. We avoid the deep abiding joy that comes from Christ in the midst of pain and suffering. How do we do this? Eugene Peterson says that we eliminate things that hurt us. We get rid of pain by numbing the nerve endings. Right? Maybe it's drinking, it's drugs, it's busyness, it's success, it's sex, it's thinking about the future. We get rid of insecurity by eliminating risks. We don't want to step out of our comfort zones. We get rid of disappointment by depersonalizing relationships. We pull away from people. Or we try to buy our joy, going on nice vacations or getting a, a job or a car or maybe we start a nonprofit or an NGO and we think that's going to give us joy. The story of the Bible, the Christian story, is one of captivity to deliverance, slavery to freedom, death to resurrection, suffering to glory. Jesus experienced the sadness of this world. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He entered into the captivity when He took our sins upon Himself. When He hung on the cross, separated from His Father and the Spirit. And Hebrews tells us, with the joy set before Jesus, 
He endured the cross. Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from the cross, from the cross shows us that Jesus is relying on the future hope in the midst of His present pain, that God would bring life and restoration through His pain and through His death. So as Christians, we step into pain. We're able to risk. We're able to get into the mess of people's lives because we know that true joy does not come from avoiding these things, but from engaging in God's work in our lives and other people's lives. True joy comes in the midst of pain as we die to ourselves and we see life spring forth. That's joy. It's our story. Jesus laid his life down that we might receive life. It's our pattern for joy, church. Laying our life down so that life can blossom in those around us and in the city of Durham and around the world. We might sow in tears, but we will reap with shouts of joy. Now, yesterday was the SEC championship game. It's kind of sad to see Alabama win it, but they did. Uh, and not sure if you watched it, but uh, if you've ever seen the halftime show in the SEC championship game, well, in 2011, the SEC championship had the Dr. Pepper halftime uh, football throw, and Yvonne Padilla-Rodriguez made 13 football throws through a 1.5-foot diameter from about five yards away. 13. I mean, just nailing them. She won $100,000 in scholarship money. And the moment she realized she had won, before they ever called her name, she began to bawl, just tears streaming down her face. Tracy Wolfson, the CBS sideline analyst, said, Yvonne, tell me how important this is to you. And Yvonne said, this is so important. Tears streaming, barely talk. She said, Dr. Pepper is seriously the best thing that has ever happened to me. <laughs> it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. What's the best thing that's ever happened to you? What's your reaction to it? Is Christ the best thing that has ever happened to you? Jesus sat relationship with Christ satisfies. It doesn't matter how you pursue joy and gladness. Bert Shavitz, Tom Brady, if it's not life with Christ, it will not satisfy. A Jewish scholar noted that the most incredible thing he ever saw was in Auschwitz, Nazi Germany in World War II, when they marched Christians to the gas chamber and they were singing. They were singing. Joy is one of the chief characteristics of of a Christian. It's the second fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. We can't contrive it. It is a consequence of knowing Jesus, of remembering what He has done, and looking toward what He will do. The God who has and the God who will deliver gives joy in the present. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I ask that You would give us joy. That we would be a people that say we are glad not a fake happiness, but a deep joy that comes from experiencing and knowing you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.